During the last episode, I read you a story of Kentucky folklore that mentioned the name Gunnis. The topics in that story were compared to the gruesomeness of the Gunnis murders. At the time, I didn't pay much attention, but I thought the name sounded familiar and made a note to look into it. Once I started doing the research, it all came back to me. And wow, what a story. Some of you will already know this one, but I think you'll at least hear some new details you haven't heard before in my version. I poured through the newspapers. There are books written about this topic, there are documentaries and movies based on it, but my research is based entirely on the archives paired with a few modern articles, and I can't wait to share this with you. It's going to be a long one, so settle in. Welcome to episode 132, Indiana Serial Killer, Bell Gunnis, part one. Some of this story takes place before the turn of the 19th century, and even the parts that did occur in the 1900s, some of the details are a bit complicated and were reported differently in different places. So especially some of the names of victims, also some dates will be a little blurry. I tried to get as accurate as I could. Also, listener discretion advised, this series is gruesome. I'll be discussing domestic abuse, arson, dismemberment, poisoning, and infanticide. Here we go. Wednesday, May 6, 1908. The front page headline of the Indianapolis News read, Mrs. Gunnis, woman bluebeard, used Cupid to lure victims. More bodies. Belle Gunnis was born Brynhild Polstadter Sorseth on November 11, 1859, in Norway, the youngest of eight children to parents Paul and Barrett Storseth. Belle spent her early teenage years in Norway, working for neighboring farms, saving up money to immigrate to the United States, which she did sometime around 1881, when she was in her early 20s. She followed her older sister, Nellie, who'd left for the U.S. before her, they settled in Chicago. At the time of her move, she started going by Belle instead of Brynhild and lived with Nellie and Nellie's husband while working first as a domestic servant. Then in some reports, it said she became a butcher. In others, it just said she worked in a butcher shop. Belle was almost always described across various publications and articles about her as a masculine woman she was around five foot seven and weighed between 210 and 250 pounds. By most accounts, she was not an attractive woman, but she managed to attract men. In fact, she worked hard at it because money was important to her. Her sister Nellie said it had always been that way. Belle knew that her jobs as a servant or working in a butcher shop were never going to allow her to achieve the lifestyle she desired. Not long after arriving in Chicago, she met a man named Mads Ditlev Anton Sorensen, described as a handsome, broad-shouldered blonde. Sorensen was also born in Norway in 1854. It's unclear when he moved to the United States. 
He worked as a guard for a department store in downtown Chicago, and he and Belle got married in 1884. From here, the story starts to break down into a few different theories. According to author Lillian De La Torre, Belle really wanted children, but it appeared the couple could not get pregnant. She tried to adopt one of Nellie's children, but Nellie wouldn't allow it. This caused a falling out between the two sisters. But then there were children at the Sorensen house, though no one ever saw Belle pregnant, the implication being that they adopted children. At some point, Belle and Mads opened a confectioner's shop downtown. Belle had hoped this shop would be the catalyst for the kind of lifestyle she yearned for, but the business failed, and the shop mysteriously burned to the ground within the first two years of its opening. Belle explained to investigators that a kerosene lamp must have exploded, but no lamp was ever found in the debris. No matter. They collected the insurance from the fire and moved on. The Sorensen family moved to Texas, near Austin. That family home was destroyed by a fire in 1898. They collected a payout from that fire as well. More than one Sorensen family home had mysteriously burned over the years, and they collected each time. I looked for something about any of these fires in the newspapers, and I couldn't find anything. It makes me wonder if Belle didn't shy away from the media on purpose, knowing that in the long run, she would be better off flying under the radar. Two babies died in the Sorensen household. In several places this is mentioned, in some it's not, but they had four children living with them in total. Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. The names of which ones died as babies get mixed up in the various reports. On a genealogy website, Caroline is listed as living from 1895 to 1896, so it's pretty clear she was one of the babies that died. In another listing on the same website, Axel is listed as being born in 1893 and dying in 98, which means he wasn't a baby, but he was quite young, around five years old, and I think this is the second child these reports are referring to. Their deaths were described as being caused by inflammation of the large intestine. The symptoms they presented with were thought to be caused by colitis at the time, but later it would become clear that poisoning was much more likely. Remember, there was a lot of speculation that these weren't Belle's biological children. No one ever saw her pregnant, so they kind of just appeared so that people thought they were adopted. But she did have them each insured, and they received payouts upon each child's death. And then on July 30th, 1900, according to Belle, Mad Sorensen came home from work with a headache. So she gave her ailing husband some quinine powder for the pain, and a while later, she went to check on him, but he was dead. Mads had purchased two life insurance policies, and he just so happened to die on the day that they overlapped, with one just beginning and the other about to expire. And Belle collected on both. 
I've seen varying reports that she received between $5,000 and $8,500. This would be between $180,000 and $310,000 today. Belle Sorensen would not have to worry about money for quite some time, or so you would think. After the death of her first husband, Belle took her remaining children to LaPorte, Indiana. The children who went with her were Myrtle, Lucy, and now there was a third daughter, not really mentioned in any prior records, named Jenny Olson. It's unclear exactly when Jenny entered the picture, but she did arrive in LaPorte with the rest of the family, and Jenny was listed as being born in 1890 in Chicago. With the heaps of insurance money she'd collected over the years, Belle was able to purchase a farm about a mile north of LaPorte on McClung Road. The red brick house on the farm was built by one of the founders of LaPorte, John Walker. His family left during the Civil War because the town was pro-Union and the Walkers were Southern sympathizers. In 1892, the property was purchased by Maddie Altick, a madam from Chicago. The property was used as a brothel until her death. Then it kind of became neglected and run down with no one maintaining it until Bell purchased it around the turn of the century. And it's pretty clear why Bell chose Laporte to settle down if you really try to get into her head. Today, it's just an hour car ride from Chicago so she could have gone back and forth fairly easily, but it's a small town and she needed that quiet, isolated area because she knew that's how she would continue to get away with doing what she did. Shortly after moving to Laporte, Belle disappeared for a while and she returned a married woman, this time to a man named Peter Gunnis. Peter was described similarly to Belle's first husband, quote, a fine-looking blonde Viking of a man with clear blue eyes and a pointed yellow beard and mustache. Belle and Peter got married on April 1st, 1902, and a week later, Peter's daughter from a previous marriage was dead. The details of this death are especially vague. In the reports I read, this little girl was referred to as a baby or sometimes an infant. So either way, this was a very young little girl who was left alone in Belle's care while Peter was out, and when he returned, the baby was dead. That's really all we know. Now, around this time, Belle did become pregnant herself, assumably with Peter's child. But just eight months after their marriage and the death of his daughter, Peter died too. Belle told police that her husband was reaching up for something on a tall shelf and a meat grinder fell off the shelf, smashing his skull and killing him instantly. Hmm, a terrible accident. There was plenty of gossip around town, but the police appeared satisfied with her explanation because there was no further investigation. Even though, according to LaPorteLibrary.org, one of Bell's daughters allegedly told a friend, quote, Mama brained Papa with a meat cleaver. Now, if all of these things, the fires, the first husband's death, the children's deaths, and now the new husband and child's deaths, law enforcement 
probably would have picked up on this, right? But remember, she started in Chicago, relocated to Texas, and was now living in rural Indiana. To law enforcement, these all appeared to be isolated incidents. As you could have guessed by now, Peter had life insurance. Bell was able to collect another $3,000. Single again, she spent her days fixing up the farmhouse while pregnant, and her last child, Philip, was born in the spring of 1903. A couple years after Philip was born, Bell hired a man named Ray Lamphere to help her with the farm. There were always men around to help out, but Ray is an important character in this story, so remember that name. Lots of improvements were made to the farm. It was a pig farm, by the way. One thing Bell did was install a six-foot privacy fence topped with barbed wire. The men from the hardware store wondered why a pig pen would need to be six feet tall, but they weren't going to question an imposing woman like Bell. According to residents of Laporte, Bell did a great job raising her children by their standards. They were well behaved, very obedient. All she had to do was give them a look and they would straighten up. They went to the Quaker school in town and every weekend they attended Sunday school. Residents also said Bell was a great cook and a great baker and she would always decorate to the nines for Christmas. Belle wasn't just raising children and running the farm. No, she was also actively looking for a husband, husband number three, by placing ads in Scandinavian newspapers. This wasn't terribly uncommon, people placing want ads for spouses in newspapers. Belle wouldn't dare limit herself to local men. She was placing ads all over the country. Wider net, more fish. It's interesting the way Lillian de la Torre wrote about Belle at this time in her life in Laporte. Like I said, she's never described as traditionally attractive, but she dressed in a way that you could call sexy for the times. She would cinch her corset extremely tight to show off her curves, and she would get dolled up, and it sounds like it was her personality and her style and her mannerisms that attracted men, not necessarily her looks. I think she was just a forward, more aggressive woman than what most women were like back then. She was also said to wear diamonds out regularly, so people knew she had money. And she was said to have these piercing blue eyes that you just couldn't look away from. She would dress up very feminine to go into town or attend church, but she would also wear men's clothing while doing chores on the farm, and she could and would do anything a man would. And I think that was enticing to a lot of men too because it was just unusual back then. To put it simply, she didn't attract men. She intrigued them. It was painfully obvious that Belle was having romantic relationships with her hired help over the years. Men would come and go, and if they left, it was usually in a bit of a dramatic fashion. She broke a lot of hearts and people knew it. Back to those ads in the newspapers. She would write that she was a single, independently wealthy woman running a farm in rural Indiana. 
And that is quite a bio in the U.S. in the early 20th century. She would write that she was looking for a man who could hold their own financially. Don't bother responding if you're not also wealthy. That was essentially the message. And she would ask that if men were going to answer her, they needed to bring along some cash to prove it. She got plenty of responses. She would start with pen pals. They would write back and forth. And then she would ask them to ditch their lives and come live on the farm with her and to bring their valuables, obviously. Around this time, when men were coming and going, or coming and never being seen again, people in town realized they hadn't seen Belle's adopted daughter, Jenny, in quite some time. Jenny was well-liked by LaPorte residents, and so when they stopped seeing her around, they wanted to know where she went. Belle told people she had gone off to college, but it was odd that she hadn't said goodbye to anyone, not even her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Emil. One man who answered Belle's ads was Henry Gerholt, a farmhand from Wisconsin. After arriving at the farm in Laporte, Henry wrote to his family, telling them he liked it there, he loved the farm, and everything was going well. Then the family abruptly stopped hearing from him. Finally, they wrote to Belle asking why they hadn't heard from Henry, and she explained to them that he left her farm to accompany some horse traders to Chicago. She did, however, keep his trunk and fur overcoat. There was also John Moe, a Minnesota man who arrived in Laporte around 1906 with a bunch of cash and a hopeful heart. He and Belle had written each other for months, and John was smitten. No one back home in Minnesota heard from John after he got to Laporte. A carpenter who sometimes did work on Bell's farm later recalled seeing over a dozen trunks in Bell's house, including one labeled John Moe. And there was Andrew Helgeline. This poor man's name is spelled so many different ways in the newspapers, but I'm pretty sure it's Helgeline. In 1908, he answered an ad placed by Bell in the Minneapolis Tidend, a Norwegian newspaper. They started writing to each other. Bell wrote, Quote, I place you higher in my affections than anyone on this earth. Take all your money out of the bank and come as soon as possible. And that's just what he did. When Andrew left, he told his brother, Asla, that he would be back in a week. So either he was lying to his brother or he only intended for this to be a first visit. Maybe he was going to feel things out, then he'd come home, get the rest of his stuff and go live with Belle permanently. But the brother, Asla, stopped hearing from Andrew. And here's the thing. Belle would usually give direct orders to her suitors not to tell their families where they were going. And in a lot of cases, they didn't. So these families had no idea what happened to their loved ones. And in fact, Andrew kept it a secret as well. Luckily, Asla found their correspondence, found Belle's address, and first wrote to her asking where his brother was. She wrote back, quote, You wish to know where your brother keeps himself? Well, this is just what I would like to know, but it almost seems impossible for me to give a definite answer. 
isn't that so strange? That response, I would be like, oh no. And Asla thought so too, because he immediately headed for LaPorte, Indiana. And this is where everything fell apart for Belle Gunness. She now knew that one of these family members was inquiring about a man who was last known to be heading for her farm. The heat was on. And from here, there are a couple different versions and theories of what happened next. So first, I will just give you the facts of the events that took place in early 1908. First of all, I thought it very interesting that in the Idaville Observer, Idaville is about an hour south of Laporte, I found a little article under a section called Hoosierisms, little items of interest all over the length and breadth of Indiana. And it read, quote, after spending several months in fruitless search for Jacob Butts, formerly of Rushville, his relatives have come to the conclusion that the missing man was a victim of Bell Gunnis. That was written in January of 1908, before Bell Gunnis was officially on any law enforcement's radar, before the public had put two and two together, that Bell Gunnis was a serial killer, before this. Flames of incendiary origin destroy farm home. Mrs. Gunnis and three children of LaPorte County believed to have lost their lives. In April of 1908, Osla Helgeline informed Bell Gunnis that he was planning to leave for LaPorte to look for his missing brother. That, many believe, is the catalyst that set the rest of this story in motion. Initial reports said the fire was started sometime around 4 a.m. on the morning of April 28th. There was a man working for Bell at the time and living in the house named Joseph Maxson, who woke up to his room filling with smoke. He was somehow able to escape, even with the fire spreading so quickly, engulfing every part of the house. In fact, investigators believed the fire had started in several locations in the house at the same time. It appeared in every way intentional. This was an arson case. He said he tried to wake Mrs. Gunnis by knocking on her bedroom door, but she didn't answer. Several neighbors put up a ladder on the side of the house to try to get to her and the kids, but they saw inside the room it was empty, so they assumed she and the children had tried to get downstairs and probably didn't make it. They were somewhere in the house and by then it was too late to try to get them out. The day after the fire, the Chicago Tribune revealed that three blackened forms were found, quote, huddled about that of the mother, as if they had sought her protection as the flames enveloped them. Several early reports of this fire did mention the fact that her husband died years ago under, quote, rather peculiar circumstances. Of course, they had only put together the one husband at the time. And all the reports from that day also name one suspect, Ray Lamphere. And I mentioned Ray earlier. Bell hired Ray in 1906. So who was this guy? Lillian de la Tour described him this way, quote, a wiry young fellow in his 30s with brown eyes and curly brown hair and a silky brown waterfall mustache curving down over a mouth that was pretty and weak. He was a handyman, may have had a bit of a drinking problem, and is described as not being very intelligent. 
Ray had just moved back to LaPorte recently after getting his heart broken by a woman in Minnesota. He was looking for love and companionship and had found those things in Bell Gunnis. Ray moved into the Gunnis house. She cooked for him and he did odd jobs around the house and farm. She showered him with gifts, clothing and watches. Sure, some of them seemed pre-owned, but he didn't mind. It was much nicer than what he was used to. He would show off to his friends in town, bragging that he was going to marry Belle. Keep in mind that Belle is almost 50 years old at this point, making her over 20 years his senior. The speculation was that he was this lost, heartbroken young man, and she was confident, mature, almost a mother figure to him but also somehow alluring and made him feel like a successful man. He was totally infatuated with her by all accounts, and this became a problem because Belle was placing ads in the papers while Ray was living with and working for her. He became, quote, insanely jealous. And Belle really didn't need that kind of drama in her life because it was going to interfere with her griffs. So she sent Ray packing in February of 1908. He found a job and boarding at another farm, but he kept showing up drunk at Bell's, drawing unwanted attention. Bell tried to have him arrested for stealing a watch, but failed to prove he'd stolen it. She was able to have him fined for trespassing, but it never stopped him. He just kept showing up. Bell demanded a sanity hearing in court they actually agreed to do this, but he was found sane. On Monday, April 27th, Belle Gunnis made a visit to a Laporte lawyer to make a will. She cried to this lawyer that she was afraid Ray Lamphere was going to burn her house down. If something happened to Belle, she wanted her property to go to her three children, and if they died, it would go to the Norwegian orphan home. When first interviewed, Ray told investigators he had been near the Gunnis home that morning, but he was just passing through. And he did actually see some smoke coming from the house, but he knew he wasn't welcome there, and so it wasn't any of his business. The farm he was working on now was 10 miles north of Laporte, and so maybe his route had been a little roundabout that morning, but truly he was just on his way back to work. At this time in the investigation, although there were some media outlets hinting at Mrs. Gunnis' record of dead husbands, for the most part, she was being portrayed as an innocent woman, the victim of jealous maniac Ray Lamphere. Ray told the sheriff and prosecutor he'd stayed with a woman named Elizabeth Smith the night of the fire, and he left her house at 3 a.m. that morning to walk back to work. Which, yeah, it sounds a little weird to get up and go to work at 3 a.m., but it's old-timey and he was a farmhand, and if he had to be at work at a certain time, and he had to walk several miles to get there, it's not that unbelievable. But Prosecutor Smith and Sheriff Smutzer went ahead and charged Ray with first-degree murder. Also, remember that name, Elizabeth Smith, the woman Ray said he was with before the fire. She'll reappear later. 
I wanted to explain how infamous this case would become in 1908. Usually when I type in a name on newspapers.com for a particular year and a certain region, if it's a murder case, it might get 50 or 100 hits in that year. If it was a really big front page story, maybe a few hundred. Belle Gunness's name appears in newspapers in Illinois and Indiana over a thousand times in 1908. And the murder didn't even happen till April. And it appears over 4,000 times if you expand that search to national. And here's why. It turns out the figure found in the fire, believed to be Belle Gunness, was missing a head. That's right, the body found in the charred ruins that appeared to be that of an adult woman was headless. This detail was revealed by the press on May 1st, and as you can imagine, people went bonkers. The Chicago Tribune wrote, quote, Where is the head of Mrs. Bell Gunness? This question is proving an enigma to the officers striving to solve the mystery surrounding the tragic fate of the woman and her three children who died in flames which destroyed their home. In order to find the head, investigators started poking around on the property, and they found more than they bargained for. Now remember, Andrew Helgeline's brother, Osla, was on his way to Laporte to look for his missing brother. When he arrived, he saw the site, this burned down farmhouse, surrounded by investigators scratching their heads. Over the coming days, family members of missing men from all over the region would arrive in Laporte to identify remains. After digging near a soft depression in the pig pen, a gunny sack was found containing hands, feet, and a head Oslo was able to identify as belonging to his missing brother. Later, the coroner, with the help of an expert from Chicago, would find evidence of strychnine and arsenic in his remains. When asked about the dead man, Ray, from his jail cell, told investigators he thought Andrew had left for Sweden, when in fact he had been cut into pieces with a saw and buried in a pig pen. By now, the Fort Wayne News was referring to Ray as Lamphere the Fiend, and somehow it was being reported that he was responsible for these bodies discovered on the farm. Early on, the remains of a young man and a woman were found near the fence line of the property, and every day it seemed like new body parts were being unearthed. Also, the descriptions of the way the bodies in the house had been found were changing. Now, it was reported, quote, the bodies of the three children had been thrown across that of their mother, instead of earlier reports which said that the, the kids were huddled around their mother for comfort and safety. Finally, by May 6th, news outlets were beginning to see the situation for what it really was. A Chicago paper called the Inter-Ocean read, quote, Find five bodies, woman-branded arch-murderess. Under that headline, the paper revealed investigators were concerned that Bell was very much alive and on the run. So far, the paper said these were the remains they had found on the property. Andrew Helgeline, whose body was hacked to pieces and his head severed. Jenny Olson, Bell's adopted daughter, found in an advanced state of decomp. Body of a man, Tall, black hair and mustache, thought to be a sweetheart of Jenny's. Two unidentified babies, 
only the skeletons remained. And another man, who, according to Ray, disappeared three years ago, but Belle wouldn't tell Ray anything about it. Jenny's body was discovered on what would have been her 18th birthday. To add to the drama of this whole thing, investigators were quickly uncovering this other operation they felt like Belle was involved in. Quote, an express man had delivered five trunks to the Gunnis home during the last six months, and the authorities are hard at work on the theory that the place was a clearinghouse for murderers. It's strongly suspected that after being lured to Chicago and killed, the bodies of wealthy persons were packed in these trunks and sent to Laporte and disposed of. And investigators were putting the pieces together in other ways. Two days after Andrew Helgeline was said to have left Laporte, Bell went around town and paid off several debts she owed, totaling close to $3,000. Since it was unclear if she was alive or dead, city officials debated whether or not to offer a reward for the capture of Bell Gunnis. On May 7th, the Chicago assistant chief of police came right out and told the press that he believed she was alive and on the run. He said investigators in Austin were going to start looking into the land where she lived years ago. They would also go through missing persons files from the time she lived in Austin. Her sister Nellie made a public statement that she believed not only was her sister capable of these murders, but she too believed it was likely Belle was still alive and on the run. She said her sister was, quote, so maniacally possessed of lust for money that she would not have stopped at any degree of crime to enrich herself. Remember, decades ago, Belle tried to adopt one of Nellie's children. On May 8th, there was another bombshell. The coroner had taken measurements of the body from the fire that was meant to be Bell's, and there was a big problem. Quote, the dead woman was not more than half the size or weight of the siren who is supposed to have lured a score of men to their death. The papers were having a field day. H.H. Holmes was brought up a lot in the next few days in articles about Bell. Their stories were eerily similar. On May 9th, the coroner was quoted in the South Bend Tribune saying he was almost positive the body he had in his morgue was not Bell Gunnis. Also on May 9th, police arrested a woman on a train between Utica and Syracuse who they believed was Bell. It wasn't. Meanwhile, another body was discovered on the farm. When we pick up next time, investigators will continue their search for Belle. Meanwhile, her status as living or deceased will be hotly debated in the trial of Ray Lamphere. You'll learn the fates of several characters in this story, but not everyone's. Please remember to leave a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the show. You can reach out to me via kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com and be sure to connect with the show on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Until next time.